The History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 2, by Gaston Maspero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 1 of History of Egypt, Volume 2, by Gaston Maspero. Chapter 1. The Political Constitution of Egypt, Part 1. Between the Fayum and the apex of the delta, the Libyan range expands and forms a vast and slightly undulating tableland, which runs parallel to the Nile for nearly thirty leagues. The great sphinx Harmachus has mounted guard over its northern extremity ever since the time of the followers of Horus. Hewn out of solid rock at the extreme margin of the mountain plateau, he seems to raise his head in order that he may be the first to behold, across the valley, the rising of his father the sun. Only the general outline of the lion can now be traced in his weather-worn body. The lower portion of the headdress has fallen, so that the neck appears too slender to support the weight of the head. The cannon-shot of the fanatical Mamelukes has injured both the nose and beard, and the red colouring which gave animation to his features has now almost entirely disappeared. But in spite of this, even in its decay, it still bears a commanding expression of strength and dignity. The eyes look into the far-off distance with an intensity of deep thought, the lips still smile, the whole face is pervaded with calmness and power. The art that could conceive and hew this gigantic statue out of the mountainside was an art in its maturity, master of itself and sure of its effects. How many centuries were needed to bring it to this degree of development and perfection? In later times a chapel of alabaster and rose granite was erected alongside the god, Temples were built here and there in the more accessible places, and round these were grouped the tombs of the whole country. The bodies of the common people, usually naked and uncoffined, were thrust under the sand, at a depth of barely three feet from the surface. Those of a better class rested in mean rectangular chambers, hastily built of yellow bricks, and roofed with pointed vaultings. No ornaments or treasures gladdened the deceased in his miserable resting-place, a few vessels, however, of coarse pottery contained the provisions left to nourish him during the period of his second existence. Some of the wealthy class had their tombs cut out of the mountainside, but the majority preferred an isolated tomb, a mastaba, comprising a chapel above ground, a shaft, and some subterranean vaults. From a distance these chapels have the appearance of truncated pyramids, varying in size according to the fortune or taste of the owner, there are some which measure thirty to forty feet in height, with a façade one hundred and sixty feet long, and a depth from back to front of some eighty feet, while others attain only a height of some ten feet upon a base of sixteen feet square. The walls slope uniformly towards one another, and usually have a smooth surface. Sometimes, however, their courses are set back one above the other almost like steps. The brick mastabas were carefully cemented externally, and the layers bound together internally by fine sand poured into the interstices. Stone mastabas, on the contrary, present a regularity in the decoration of their facings alone. In nine cases out of ten the core is built of rough stone blocks, rudely cut into squares, cemented with gravel and dried mud, or thrown together pell-mell without mortar of any kind. The whole building should have been oriented according to rule, the four sides to the four cardinal points, the greatest axis directed north and south, but the masons seldom troubled themselves to find the true north, 
and the orientation is usually incorrect. The doors face east, sometimes north or south, but never west. One of these is but the semblance of a door, a high, narrow niche, contrived so as to face east, and decorated with grooves framing a carefully walled-up entrance. This was for the use of the dead, and it was believed that the ghost entered or left it at will. The door for the use of the living, sometimes preceded by a portico, was almost always characterized by great simplicity. Over it is a cylindrical tympanum, or a smooth flagstone, bearing sometimes merely the name of the dead person, sometimes his titles and descent, sometimes a prayer for his welfare, and an enumeration of the days during which he was entitled to receive the worship due to ancestors. They invoked on his behalf, and almost always precisely in the same words, the great god, the Osiris of Mendes, or else Anubis, dwelling in the divine palace, that burial might be granted to him in Amentit, the land of the west, the very great and very good, to him the vassal of the great god, that he might walk in the ways in which it is good to walk, he the vassal of the great god, that he might have offerings of bread, cakes, and drink, at the new year's feast, at the feast of thought, on the first day of the year, on the feast of Ugait, at the great fire festival, at the procession of the god Minu, at the feast of offerings, at the monthly and half-monthly festivals, and every day. The chapel is usually small, and is almost lost in the great extent of the building. It generally consists merely of an oblong chamber, approached by a rather short passage. At the far end, and set back into the western wall, is a huge quadrangular stele, at the foot of which is seen the table of offerings, made of alabaster, granite, or limestone, placed flat upon the ground, and sometimes two little obelisks or two altars, hollowed at the top to receive the gifts mentioned in the inscription on the exterior of the tomb. The general appearance is that of a rather low, narrow doorway, too small to be a practicable entrance. The recess thus formed is almost always left empty. Sometimes, however, the piety of relatives placed within it a statue of the deceased. Standing there, with soldiers thrown back, head erect, and smiling face, the statue seems to step forth to lead the double from its dark lodging where it lies embalmed, to those glowing plains where he dwelt in freedom during his earthly life. Another moment, crossing the threshold, he must descend the few steps leading into the public hall. On festivals and days of offerings, when the priest and family presented the banquet with the customary rites, this great painted figure, in the act of advancing, and seen by the light of flickering torches or smoking lamps, might well appear endued with life. It was as if the dead ancestor himself stepped out of the wall and mysteriously stood before his descendants to claim their homage. The inscription on the lintel repeats once more the name and rank of the dead. Faithful portraits of him and of other members of his family figure in the bas-reliefs on the doorposts. The little scene at the far end represents him seated tranquilly at table, with the details of the feast carefully recorded at his side, from the moment when water is brought to him for ablution, to that when, all culinary skill being exhausted, he has but to return to his dwelling, in a state of beatified satisfaction. The stele represented to the visitor the door leading to the private apartments of the dead, the fact of its being walled up forever showing that no living mortal might cross its threshold. The inscription which covered its surface was not a mere epitaph, informing future generations who it was that reposed beneath. It perpetuated the name and genealogy of the deceased, and gave him a civil status, without which he could not have preserved his personality in the world beyond. 
the nameless dead, like a living man without a name, was reckoned as non-existing. Nor was this the only use of the stele. The pictures and prayers inscribed upon it acted as so many talismans for ensuring the continuous existence of the ancestor, whose memory they recalled. They compelled the god therein invoked, whether Osiris or the jackal Anubis, to act as mediator between the living and the departed. They granted to the god the enjoyment of sacrifices and those good things abundantly offered to the deities, and by which they live, on condition that a share of them might first be set aside for the deceased. By the divine favor, the soul, or rather the doubles, of the bread, meat, and beverages passed into the other world, and there refreshed the human double. It was not, however, necessary that the offerings should have a material existence in order to be effective. The first comer who should repeat aloud the name and the formulas inscribed upon the stone, secured for the unknown occupant, by this means alone, the immediate possession of all the things which he enumerated. The stele constitutes the essential part of the chapel and tomb. In many cases it was the only inscribed portion, it alone being necessary to ensure the identity and continuous existence of the dead man. Often, however, the sides of the chamber and passage were not left bare. When time or the wealth of the owner permitted, they were covered with scenes and writing, expressing at greater length the ideas summarized by the figures and inscriptions of the stele. Neither pictorial effect nor the caprice of the moment was permitted to guide the artist in the choice of his subjects. All that he drew, pictures or words, had a magical purpose. Every individual who built for himself an eternal house either attached to it a staff of priests of the double, of inspectors, scribes, slaves, or else made an agreement with the priests of a neighboring temple to serve the chapel in perpetuity. Lands taken from his patrimony, which thus became the domains of the eternal house, rewarded them for their trouble, and supplied them with meats, vegetables, fruits, liquors, linen, and vessels for sacrifice. In theory these liturgies were perpetuated from year to year, until the end of time, but in practice, after three or four generations, the older ancestors were forsaken for those who had died more recently. Notwithstanding the imprecations and threats of the donor against the priest who should neglect their duty, or against those who should usurp the funeral endowments, Sooner or later there came a time when, forsaken by all, the double was in danger of perishing for want of substance. In order to ensure that the promised gifts, offered in substance on the day of burial, should be maintained throughout the centuries, the relatives not only depicted them upon the chapel walls, but represented in addition the lands which produced them, and the labor which contributed to their production. On one side we see ploughing, sowing, reaping, the carrying of the corn, the storing of the grain, the fattening of the poultry, and the driving of the cattle. A little further on, workmen of all descriptions are engaged in their several trades. Shoemakers ply the awl, glassmakers blow through their tubes, metal founders watch over their smelting pots, carpenters hew down trees and build a ship, groups of women weave or spin under the eye of a frowning taskmaster, who seems impatient of their chatter. Did the double in his hunger desire meat? he might choose from the pictures on the wall the animal that pleased him best, whether kid, ox, or gazelle. He might follow the course of its life, from its birth in the meadows to the slaughterhouse and the kitchen, and might satisfy his hunger with flesh. The double saw himself represented in the paintings as hunting, and to the hunt he went. He was painted eating and drinking with his wife, and he ate and drank with her. The pictured ploughing, harvesting, and gathering into barns thus became to him actual realities. 
In fine, this painted world of men and things represented upon the wall was quickened by the same life which animated the double, upon whom it all depended. The picture of a meal or of a slave was perhaps that which best suited the shade of guest or of master. End of section 1. Read by Professor Heather Mbye. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.